Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Packer. I'm Itamar Srulovich. Welcome to the fourth season of The Honey and Co. This season we'll be joined by authors that have written cookbooks that are so much more than just a simple cookbook. They are taking us into their world. We're going to talk to artists, to travelers, to home cooks, professional chefs. We're going to look at books that take us to a specific time or a specific place or change the way we look at cookbooks or change the way we cook or try to do it anyway. We hope you enjoy listening. So tonight we're joined by the fabulous Russell Norman. He is the founder of the Polpo Restaurant Group. He's the writer of Polpo the Cookbook, Spontino the Cookbook, and now Venice the Cookbook. And he is such a good speaker and so eloquent and so inspirational that he's a trendsetter without even intending to be a trendsetter. Uh, drinking out of tumblers and having exposed brick walls. Everything that you do now in restaurants is because of Russell Norman. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to him. He'll tell you all about his years spent in Venice, cooking the local food, buying in the markets, and dealing with Italians. We'd like to welcome Russell Norman, uh, restaurateur, TV presenter, cookbook writer, a huge, huge influence on the London restaurant scene in so many ways, and we're so excited that he is here. He's obviously the founder of the Polpo Group, and he's just been a huge inspiration in terms of design of restaurants and books. So please welcome Russell Norman. So I started writing questions, and I had so many questions that I thought, okay, this is a podcast and we need to kind of... (coughs) keep it into something realistic for for you guys to not get impatient and get some of the food and stuff like that. So we're just going to go briefly a bit into your history because actually you're not from the food industry originally. I'm not. I studied English at Sunderland Polytechnic in the 80s. And um, uh, after after I finished my degree, I I didn't know what to do. Really genuinely had a sort of crisis of confidence. You know, what can I do after after three years of English? Um, It's a good question, actually, still to these to this day, yeah. um, and I went to the job centre, which is what you did in uh, in really? Sunderland in the in the late eighties, uh, and um, had a look at the board. And there was this this job which really sort of stood out, which was um, 
very poorly paid, but it was working in a mining village, an ex-mining village called Easington Colliery in East Durham. Uh, Thatcher, uh, Margaret Thatcher, closed all of the pits pretty much overnight um, in the 80s. There was a huge fight with Arthur Scargill and the miners, and there was this sort of catastrophic loss of uh, employment across the uh, entire north of England. And Easington was no exception. Um, so it went from 100% employment on a Tuesday to 100% unemployment on a Wednesday. And there was this little card in the um, job centre in Sunderland <clears throat> advertising a job for a community arts officer in Easington. I thought, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Little did I know. So I went, I went to the interview, and I obviously impressed. They gave me the job straight away. And my job, uh, straight out of um, Sunderland Polytechnic. You're the only one that ever applied for that job. <laughs> probably. <laughs> my job was to teach uh, unemployed minors uh, about uh, the arts. It was to encourage unemployed minors to uh, uh, get involved in uh, folk music and, uh, and crocheting and mural painting and folk music uh, it was just astonishing really the um, you know the the, uh, the the amount of optimism i suppose in this this small card on that board in Sunderland job center um, and i think it was because easington uh, had got a grant uh, from central government because of this catastrophe yeah. this um, thatcher scargill um, uh, you didn't uh, start stripping though, like in the Full Monty. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. Get it was a little bit like that. that. Those movies, the Full Monty and, uh, and the one with the Billy Elliot, yeah. the one with the, the dancer. Exactly. They they sort of tap into it. So there I was, a, 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 a southerner, in a very a northern town, uh, full of um, uh, ex-miners who are really quite gruff and not not particularly happy to be um, in the situation that they were in. Uh, and it was a it was a tough job for a, for a year. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of um, I I lasted a year, but then ran away screaming, effectively, back home to London, which is where I was born. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in West London, but I um, came back down to East London, which is where my grandmother lived. And um, then, after a couple of days of uh, of sort of dossing around in my grandmother's house, watching Countdown every afternoon, I thought it's time it's time to get a job. And I went into the West End, and the first job that I found was um, as a bartender yep. in a now defunct cocktail bar in Covent Garden called Old Orleans. It, it was a chain. Um, uh, I think there may still be one or two Old Orleans existing in sort of out of town um, retail parks. <clears throat> I think it's now owned by Whitbread. So they employed me. It was the time of Tom Cruise and Cocktail. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. They employed me as a flair. Bartender. So did you juggle? I did. <laughs> and I was the world's worst flair bartender. <laughs> I dropped twice as many bottles as I caught. <laughs> I dropped four times as many glasses as I caught. <laughs> I rarely managed to pour a drink. I was a complete disaster. And after a week of, uh, of, of this catastrophe, <laughs> I was called into the office of the manager. I thought, okay, here we go. I'm going to get fired. Uh, but rather than being fired, they said, we really like you, but we're going to move you onto the restaurant floor. I think you're better suited to waiting tables yeah. and that was my that was the beginning of my career I didn't realize it at the time I thought it was a stopgap um, and I got a succession of jobs uh, most memorably for me um, I spent three years as a waiter and then bartender in a restaurant called Joe Allen I don't know if you know Joe Allen it's a very well-known theater and restaurant in Covent Garden yeah. it, it, it was established um, in the 60s in New York and in 1977 in Covent Garden I got a job in 1990 at Joe Allen, 
and I was there for a good couple of years until my son was born. And then I thought, this isn't the sort of career for a father. Yeah. Um, I had a degree. I thought, you know, maybe I could make something better of myself. And I, I went back to university and got a teaching qualification. And I, I went into teaching for you three years. You taught drama, I no? did, yeah. yeah. And didn't just teach drama. I went, my first interview, which I thought would be useful to have a, um, an interview under my belt for practice. Yeah. So I went for my practice interview to a a school in Harrow, in uh, not the school in Harrow, but a, a girls' school in Harrow in North London, uh, just to practice. And it was the, the job was for a, a head of drama. Yeah. And um, I was amazed when they offered me the job, my first interview. So I was head of drama at a girls' school in Harrow for three years. But the whole time I was doing that, I was also working at Joe Allen, the restaurant that I had started in, at weekends. All right. So you stayed kind of. So I stayed there, and I was going. I was getting through my week of teaching. And I enjoyed teaching. I loved uh, devising lessons and writing uh, lesson plans. I loved, you know, working with uh, my colleagues and and children and enriching sure their lives. All of that, but it was well. really badly paid. But my job at the weekends at the restaurant was actually quite well paid. Yeah. Um, not only that, I was really looking forward to it. You know, I was going. I was I was working my uh, Monday to Friday job <clears throat> in North London. And then I was going on on a Saturday night, and I was greeting and seating. Al Pacino, and nice. Jack Lemmon, and Michael Gambon, and you know, it was a theatreland restaurant. It was exciting. It was buzzy. I didn't know what was going to happen from one minute to the next, and I just thought, "Who am I kidding?" Restaurants is what I like. Restaurants is where I should be, and it's, it's my passion. And so yeah. I, I handed in my notice at the school, and um, took a full-time job as a maitre d' at Joe Allen. Um, and that was it, really. It was a sort of um, accidental, but but quite um, it kind of catches pleasurable, you this world. yeah, um, yeah, introduction to to the world of restaurants. So from there to opening Polpo, which was the from the there, first well, restaurant. I from Joe Allen, it was a succession of um, managerial roles, and, yep. and it um, it ended with um, a role at Caprice Holdings. I was operations director for Richard Kering. I opened Scotts and the club at the Ivy and the Jay Sheikhi Oyster Bar, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then. September the 15th 2008 happened Um, and the world sort of just imploded Uh, and my job suddenly overnight became about um, uh, finance and margins beforehand it was creative it was uh, about business development it was exciting and exploratory and expansive and then all of a sudden it just closed in on itself and I was given a calculator and um, I thought is this it? And it was at that point that my very good friend, my best friend, and now business partner, a chap called Richard Beatty, who I'd been at Sunderland Polytechnic with in the 80s, he said to me, he'd sold a couple of his businesses, he was working in media and advertising, he said, come on Russell, you know, you've, you've got a restaurant in you, now's the time to do it. And so I, I left my job at Caprice Holdings, and with Richard, <clears throat> who um, you know, had a bit of money to put into the kitty, um, we started to look for a site for a, a restaurant idea that I'd had for several years. Um, I was, you know, a, a, I have been a lifelong fan of the city of Venice. In fact, one of my first visits, if not my first visit to Venice, was to see Richard. Yeah. Now my business partner, but then my friend who was staying with a girlfriend there in 1986. 
And so Venice was always a constant. And um, Richard said, you know, that Venetian restaurant idea, Russell, that you've always told me about, you know, is, is something you need to explore now. Let's let's do this. And, and it was so exactly the right thing at the right time. Because we people think, were looking well, to spend you, less. You, no, in retrospect, it, yes. Yeah. In, in hindsight, um, uh, yes. There's no question that it was the right thing to do. But at the time, we were... Can I say shitting it? Yeah, I'm just, yeah. there we go. We, <laughs> there is we no were, other way. We were it? absolutely <laughs> crapping it. We, you know, we sort of looked around Soho. We saw restaurants closing left, right, and center. There were one or two restaurants that were always um, busy. Um, I can think of Barafina as an example. Yeah. Always had a queue. Um, the original Barafina on, on Fifth Street because quality always tells. Yeah. Um, but we saw other restaurants going out of business. And strangely enough, very similar to the the, um, the restaurant scene today in 2018. It is very similar. So, you know, uh, nine and a half, yeah, ten one, yeah. years on, we, we find ourselves in very similar times. But um, we found a site on Beak Street, which remarkably and coincidentally and, and, and mind-blowingly was the home and studio of the Venetian artist Canaletto. And there's a plaque on the wall outside to this day <laughs> to announce the fact that Canaletto lived and worked at number 41 Beak Street. <clears throat> and that was the site we, um, we, um, we signed a lease on. So how, how, how did you deal with the fact that it did become a huge thing so quickly? Because you started getting the queues or the queues inside because you have the bar and everyone is we, standing okay, there. But we, um, we opened, like any restaurant, um, in a very conventional um, uh, manner. We took reservations. Yeah. Um, and I said to my business partner, Richard, you know, we're, we, we need to open this restaurant for the local community. You know, we need... Uh, it's, it's, it's scruffy, there, there's, there's no decor, the lights are low, the music's loud, the tables are too close together, uh, there are bare brick walls, there's a scruffy reclaimed floor, we've got all this furniture that we found on eBay, I've got all of these light fittings that I've collected from my travels to Italy and to New York. Uh, it's not going to appeal to the mainstream, but it will appeal to those people that live, work and play in Soho. So, you know, let's let's concentrate on those people and make sure that we look after those those um, uh, those locals we want to be a neighborhood restaurant but what happened from the very beginning was that we got a couple of incredibly positive reviews um, most notably from the late Adrian Gill who came in and I expected him to hate it and said this is the best value in in, in central London this place is remarkable it's you know it's got soul uh, it doesn't do fancy cooking in fact you know, if anything, the, the food is more about assembly than cooking. And I thought, my God, he, he, he absolutely gets it. gets it. It's exactly right. Because that was the model that we uh, copied and the model that we were inspired by in Venice. And after that review and a few other good reviews, the phone just melted with, um, <laughs> with, with use. We were full because we were taking reservations for lunch and dinner. We were full three, four, five weeks in advance. And what we noticed, what I noticed, because I was running the place, didn't have enough money to hire a manager, so I, I ran the place myself for the first eight months. And what I noticed was that the people that were coming into the restaurant weren't locals. They weren't the Soho crowd that I opened, uh, yeah. built and opened the restaurant for. They were out-of-towners that were booking a long time in advance, three weeks in advance. They were getting uh, excited about their journey to London. Uh, their expectations were getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And so by the time they arrived at Polpo with its scruffy uh, bare wood tables with no linen, with, uh, with um, menus printed on uh, Carta Palia placemats, with wine served in tumblers, yeah. <laughs> let me tell you, 
that was the biggest, the most heinous crime I could have <laughs> committed at the time. People were, you know, were, were really quite vicious in their um, disapprobation and, um, and disgust at you know, the fact that I would pour wine into a tumbler. Not, not that dissimilar actually to this, yeah. but there's, there's at, a lot at the time it was, it was, it was terrible apparently. Um, and I said to my business partner, Richard, my head in my hands, pretty much like this, I said, we've got to change something, you know, because uh, what was also happening was that the door was opening five, six times every minute with people from uh, the local area. So, you know, the, the people that worked in advertising who just finished or the post-production people or people from Ridley Scott's office across the road, you know, this massive uh, media uh, hub. Um, hub and... Um, uh, working community in and around Soho who'd heard about this place who, 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 who thought this is something that resonates with us my god can't wait to go there would come along and be told sorry we were fully booked and have been for the three weeks and I said to Richard look <clears throat> we're turning away the people we built the restaurant for the only way we can get those people back unfortunately is to stop taking bookings yeah. to stop um, allowing those people that have got the wherewithal and the leisure time uh, to, to book many, many weeks in advance and just giving our restaurant seats and our tables and our bar seats to those people that walk in. But you started a massive trend in, in We didn't London. know that. We didn't no, know it was I a know, trend. No, no, we just know. thought we want, we want to appeal to the community. This is a neighbourhood restaurant. Our neighbourhood is Soho. The only way we can do that is by stopping taking reservations. I mean, it was so we did. But one of many trends that you said, because like you say, the tumblers for wine that we do and you know a lot of restaurants did the same thing yeah. and exposing brick walls yeah. and doing filament bulbs I think, I think and you, all you, of this you, stuff you, you hinted know. at this earlier I think you know the, the, the time was right yeah, there was um, there was a move away from luxury um, there was a restaurant funny enough that opened around about the same time as our, us across the road um, on the site of a restaurant that uh, that used to be called Circus and I worked at Circus in the late 90s early noughties and that restaurant was Bob Bob Rickard run by a friend of mine that's the extreme Le opposite. Le Leonard Chutov, uh, amazing guy who had this vision, and he opened um, at the wrong time, precisely. Yeah. And so it got a lot of stick, this place, for because being it's opulent, luxurious. Beyond, opulent. Yeah. I mean, now it's fantastic. It's the place where you press this button for champagne. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My God, what would we do in London if there weren't Bob Bob Rickard? You know, I love it. And thank goodness he, you know, he stayed the course. But at the time, he was scratching his head looking at his empty restaurant and looking at our full restaurant, thinking, My God, what's happened? How. How, how the world has just flipped. Um, but you're absolutely right. So there was, there was, a, there was a weird sort of um, threshold between the old world and the new where um, those people that needed to entertain thought, well, we've got to go out for, for supper. We've got to go out for that business lunch. But we can't be seen to be being flash. Yeah. Where can we do that and still keep our credentials we can do it at Polpo because there's no paint on the walls, because the tables are wobbly, uh, because the staff have got tattoos and they sometimes forget things. So there was this, you know, we, we, you know, we, we sort of, we just opened that rather shonky, wonky, um, I, I want to say, I say um, chaotic, but I don't want to make everybody think that that's, that's the, um, that's oh, the acceptable cool, part of the course. You could use cool, because we were thinking was, what well, expression to use I don't, yes, don't want to blow my own trumpet, but it, it, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it was slightly um, at odds with the restaurants that had opened before yeah. but it it absolutely hit a cold chord and it chimed with the times and, and then I, I couldn't came, I no? couldn't I couldn't have predicted that there was no way I could have predicted that and then Spintino yeah so um Pol Polpo on Beak Street was 2009 yeah 
and I had this idea for something similar, but with uh, a sort of downtown Manhattan, um, Williamsburg, Brooklyn sort of uh, feel and vibe rather than a Venetian vibe. And that restaurant was uh, Spuntino, yeah. which we opened in a tiny site. It only, it's still there. It has 27 seats. That's all. Yeah. You can only sit on stools. There are no tables. You have to sit around a bar. Um, there's a popcorn machine and we play crunchy blues uh, music and um, and the bartenders are the waiters and the hosts. And, and they have a lot of tattoos, which you ruined my you ruined my little joke that I was going to <laughs> ask. Go if go you rented it. it, no, it's too late now. <laughs> it's going to see if you too, if you have like a, a tattooist on full uh, payroll with all your stuff. Because Spontino for us was yeah. probably one of the coolest places. Yeah. Like we started because I think I think probably I was managing Nopi at the time. Maybe it's a bit before, and uh, we still just go there for a yeah. drink and have like some kind of a bit of junk food to eat, and yeah. it was just fun. It wasn't this whole like aspect of sitting down and having to do the whole ceremony and yeah. I think that is what chimed with so many people that then you're copied in so many other places. It's true yeah I mean I, I look at the number of places now that just to me feel and look and, and behave and resonate like Spentino yeah. it's remarkable. But that's amazing uh, for you. It's, it's like great. You start it's, it's, a, it's fantastic but you know you, you recognize it I know it and you know a couple of the, uh, the people here I'm sure will, will recognize it and a few of your listeners will recognize it too but the, but the majority yeah. of the restaurant going world and the world beyond will just look at Spentino now we opened in 2011 so seven years on they will look at Spintino now and think oh it's just one of those places that does that thing yeah and they won't think it was the first so it's you sort of lose um in in the annals of time you lose your position as a pioneer and you just become one of a, um, a genre of restaurants one of a, a, a you know a sort of yeah, um, a type you don't want to change yourself all the time as well. You want to be true to what, you, what you're doing. I think it's still, re- well, you know, you. it's still exactly well, I mean, what it should be. And absolutely. But, but Spentino is, um, is about to have a new lease of life. We've just taken a four and a half thousand square foot site in really? Heathrow Terminal 3. Which, wow, that's which we're, which we're Which we're currently um, uh, working very hard uh, uh, to create a, a new version of Spentino, which will open on the 6th of December. Oh, wow. Uh, Heathrow Terminal 3. Amazing. Uh, so a scruffy, um, uh, sexy sort of bar with some tables and a popcorn machine like the original, but also a donut machine in the kitchen. And, and lots of luggages, no? like uh, yeah, lots yeah, of suitcases got, no, listen, around. We, 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 know that we know the deal with airports. We know that we have to make sure we've got everything and um, that we appeal to everybody, yeah. whether it's a single traveler or a family or business <coughs> travelers. Um, the thing I'm most excited about our, uh, about uh, Spentino in Terminal Three is our roller skating host. <laughs> That's, That's not a joke. But it's really good. It's happening. And then that led you to a TV show, which is you know <clears throat> an excellent TV show. I don't know if you guys remember or not, and I don't know why it hasn't been recommissioned. I'm going to ask well, Russell about yeah, it, yeah, but yeah. about you going in and helping or kind of following people as they were creating restaurants and making mistakes and it's such a good show like I have no idea why it hasn't been recommissioned to okay, a million so the story, the story is, it was called The Restaurant Man it was on BBC Two in 2014 and it was a prime time 8.30 hour long documentary over six weeks at the beginning of 2014 and the story behind that was that um, one of our regular customers at Polpo and Beak Street was um, the BBC Commissioner Alison Kirkham and she's still at the BBC. She's a massive fan of Honey & Co. 
she's taken me there before. That's nice. Um, and Alison came to Polpa and said, you know, I love this place, I love you, you know, do you want to be interested in television? I was very rude. I, <laughs> I, 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 I think I used Jack Nicholson's line from, um, from uh, which was the movie, Terms of Endearment, <clears throat> where, he, where he says, I'd rather stick needles in my eyes. <laughs> so my, my response was really, you know, horrible and rude. I, I'm embarrassed about it, even to this day. Um, but a couple of years later, after the Polpo book came out, um, my agent was talking to a few television people, and she said, "Yeah, Russell might be interested in a television show." And Alison heard this and emailed me and said, "Oh, so you'd rather stick needles in your eyes, would you?" <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was very generous of her because I, I thought I was sort of um, unforgivably rude. But we um, we sort of met up again, and we talked about the possibility of a, of a show um, where. We interacted with genuine individuals that were setting up a restaurant with their own money, <clears throat> no artifice, no jeopardy, um, not the sort of thing that you would see on a very formatted program. As much as I love Gordon Ramsay, you know, I love Kitchen Nightmares, it's very formatted and watching it personally, I can see the breaks, I can see the beats and I can see the pulse of the format. And I said to Alison, would it be, would it be you know, interesting to do something that was a bit more documentary based? Sometimes the restaurant might work. Yeah. Sometimes it might fail. And Alison said, yes, I think it would. And we started filming in 2013, over eight months. Wow, it's a <laughs> we long filmed, We filmed, so for every hour of television, this isn't, I don't think this is normal, but for our programme, because we didn't know the outcome of every um, individual episode until it happened. So we had to film for every single eventuality. So it's quite time-consuming. So we filmed 80, 80 hours of television oh, for every one hour of broadcast. But, you know, I, I thought it was worth it if it was going to uh, show something about our industry that hadn't been shown before. And I think that's what I really wanted to do, and that was re- what was really important It definitely, that is what it did. And, and I was very proud that it did. Yeah, and I think for us as, as young restaurant owners at the time, it was hugely... First of all, comforting <laughs> to see other people make the same horrible yeah. mistakes that we sometimes made. And But I... So why is it... Why aren't there more? Or do you well, just not want to do more? No, not at all. I mean, th- I, c- I couldn't do more in the same way that I did the first. So 480 hours... Yeah, that's a lot of time. ...of filming to, to produce that series mm-hmm. over eight, eight and a half months. I, I couldn't do that again. I've got a day job. I've got a family. I write. You know, I have a column in a Squire magazine. I, I, I write cookbooks. It's not sustainable with, you know, with, um, with everything else that I do. I think it had um, authority, and I also think it had, um, you know, a great deal of... Um, authenticity because it was about the real world of restaurants rather than you know the rather shiny uh, television version of, um, of our business actually there's one thing that you said I don't know if you remember this but I don't even remember where I read it but it that was probably the biggest thing that you said that you had gone to an award ceremony and then gone back to the restaurant and it had flooded and you were pretty much yeah. wading in sewer yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, the, just the, the difference between I your day to day and and your I had forgotten it until you just reminded <laughs> me of it but I, I, yes Sorry no no absolutely <laughs> There was a yeah award ceremony. We were all patting ourselves on the back, and I, yeah, I think I got a text that there was a flood yeah. at one of the restaurants, and went back. and You're absolutely right. It was about eight or nine inches of sewage yeah. in the basement. But this this <coughs> is the on. restaurant life. Let, let's move on. Let's move on to cookbooks because this is actually what we're here to talk. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Talk about. So you wrote Polpo. Yes. And then Spontino. Yeah. And now Venice. Yes. So this is, I don't know if you guys have seen this yet, but first of all, it's an absolutely beautiful book but you did a, an extreme thing and this is what was so interesting to us is that you took yourself and you moved to Venice mm. for a year the first book Polpo was about the restaurant Polpo obviously um, it was a it was a big success um, partly because you know I think Polpo resonates with a certain type of person particularly those people that have been to Venice but also you know there was there was something about the book that um, that connected very directly with the restaurant the restaurant was very stripped back those of you that know that know Polpo is the I brand. Mean the, the design, though, of uh, the uh, book is amazing. Uh, or Polpo as the original, thank you, uh, as the original restaurant in Big Street. You know, we, we ripped plaster away. We took up floors. We took ceilings down. We wanted to see the bare bones of the of the building, partly because that's the sort of food that I was interested in, food that was very simple, and it was simply about the ingredients and not much else, no chefferie, no faffery. But also Venice is a city that is crumbling it's dissolving it's a city that is beautiful because of its decrepitude in my opinion and I wanted to replicate that um, that feeling of glorious decay in the first restaurant Polpo and then when um, I got an opportunity to write the book I said to my designer can we can we achieve this in some way with the book as well the restaurant is all about taking things back as far as you possibly can to reveal the structure can we do this with the book? That's why Polpo looks the way that it does. The revealed spine, the uh, Venetian paper, the ancient typeface inside, everything about it is stripped back. 
Um, to a degree, the same thing happened with Spintino. But with this book, um, it doesn't relate directly to a restaurant. Polpo did, Spintino did. This is about a city. It's about a city that grabbed me uh, and made me take note of it in 1986 when I first went there. And it's, it's obsessed and bewitched me ever since. Uh, I must have been back to Venice hundreds of times in the 32 years, 33 years uh, between my f- 32 <laughs> between my first visit and now. Um, and then I, I I thought a couple of years ago when I was um, talking to my agent about a third book, I, I thought about Venice and thought, what is what is there in Venice that I don't know? What is there that I've yet to discover? I've done the tourist bit. I've been to all the galleries. I've you know, I've been up and down the Grand Canal. I can, you know, I can recognize every palazzo by smell, let alone <laughs> sight. I, um, I know all the restaurants. I, you know, know the historic center like the back of my hand. I can walk around the city and not get lost. But the one thing that I didn't know, and the one thing that I hadn't been able to connect with um, over those 32 years, was the, the genuine v- uh, Venetian residents. Those people that live in the city, work in the city, have children in the city, uh, celebrate, commiserate, uh, and and still to this day connect with the city in a way that tourists will never understand. I thought this is something that will always elude me unless I live here. So was the plan to do this, because the book is broken into the four seasons that you would have in Venice and as the year progressed you were writing about it, but was that the plan originally or when you were there that just made sense it was the plan originally i said to my agent i said look uh, you know i'd love to do this i'd love to get to grips with the real city i'd love to get to grips with the real residents there are only 50,000 of them left and it's declining at a rate of around 1,000 a, a year it's, crazy. it's 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 quite um uh, uh, critical at the moment and most most commentators believe that when it drops below 50,000 then there won't be enough people to go to the sh- to, to buy um, produce at the markets there won't be enough people to um, sustain the shops and the whole infrastructure will, will fall very quickly like a house of cards. So I said to my agent, you know, if I do this, I've got to live there. And if I live there, then I've got to, I've got to understand and, uh, and chronicle the city in real time through the seasons because it changes so much between winter and spring, between spring and summer, summer, autumn, autumn, uh, winter. Um, and my agent said, I think it's a great idea. Let's, let's put it out there. And I, at the time, I remember saying to it, no one's going to buy this. I just, I've basically written a proposal, which is, I'd like to go and live in Venice yeah. for a year. <laughs> Please pay me Please. for it. <laughs> and on the very first day that my agent put the idea out to a few of her editors, we got a response from uh, Juliet Annan at uh, Fig Tree, Penguin Fig Tree, mm-hmm. who said, I love it and I want to preempt it. So this, this offer expires in 24 hours. It was like Mission Impossible. <laughs> So with a preemptive offer, you're not allowed to speak to anybody else. You have to either say yes or no. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was shotgun. It was yeah, cutthroat. So I've never experienced that before. It was great. And my agent said, it's a really good offer. You know, you could go, you could, you could, you know, you could carry on and yeah. maybe, you know, improve it by a little bit. But she's a great editor. She's a fantastic publisher. She loves you. She wants to publish it. So within a couple of hours, we responded and... Um, and that was it. I had a book deal. Um, the, the problem for me at that point was that I hadn't told my wife. Yeah. <laughs> this is my next thing. Wife, kids. H- and so I'd <laughs> agreed and signed. Well, not, I hadn't signed at that point, but pretty much as good as signed uh, a book deal, which um, required me to live in Venice for a year. 
Um, and so I said to um, Catherine, Summer Hay is my agent, I said, just let's, can we just pause for like 24 hours, 48 hours, just let me have a chat with, <laughs> with Mrs. Norman, with Jules. Um, and I did, and I explained how it might work. I said, look, it, it won't be a solid 12 months. It will be, you know, three weeks in Venice and then I'll come back for, you know, four or five days and then go back out and, you know, you can come out at long weekends or, you know, half terms with the girls and Easter holidays, Christmas holidays, etc., etc. It would be great. It would be an opportunity for us to, you know, go back and forth. And there's a great flight at the time we lived in uh, Blackheath in uh, southeast London, very close to City Airport. And it's a fantastic city flight. City Airport is excellent. It's wonderful. Yeah. From straight from so you, I could do it actually door to door in you know in four four and a half hours. So it wasn't too bad. Um, it ended up being fourteen months rather than twelve, um, but it was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. And um, as I said in as I say in the introduction, as I said you know in the proposal and um, and as I will continue to say to anyone that will listen, um, Venice changes so dramatically between the seasons so it was absolutely essential for me to be living in the city and writing the book not just the prose but also the recipes so um, going to the markets in the morning like my neighbors buying the produce like my neighbors going back to my humble apartment with no mod cons the same equipment that they had Um, I got slightly obsessed by only having analog kitchen utensils <laughs> uh, so I had my marble work surface like everybody else I had a really small chopping board um, I brought on my first visit um, when I first went out there in October 2016 I brought my I'm not a chef but I have all the chef kit and I brought my um, uh, my knives yeah. in my folding sheet and I got to the um, very scruffy humble apartment opened up the um, uh, the knife uh, uh, sheet and thought this is cheating Spoke to a few of my neighbours and discovered that they used um, knives that are around this, the blade around this big, that with the handle about this big. They're made by Inox. And they, uh, they usually like they're little serrated They're all serrated, like <laughs> tomato knives, basically. You buy them, uh, you buy a pack of six for 12 euros. Yeah. They're two euros each. And they tend to keep them for like 30 years. And yeah. they cut everything yeah. with these it's tiny knives. It's the same knives. with all the grandmothers in Israel. Exactly. This is the only thing they will cook with. They, and, and you show them one of your knives and they just go that? like, no. yeah. It's so they, 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 they cut everything with these horrible little <laughs> eyes. I thought, I've got to do this. And actually, it's, it's a little bit of a revelation. I still use my little, yeah. my granny tomato serrated knife um, quite frequently at home. Um, and so I took all the, you know, the fancy kit back and I, I did what my neighbors did, which was you know, go shopping every morning, not think about what you're going to cook until you've been to the market. And you've been to the uh, the veg barge, and you've been to the fishmonger, and then go back to the apartment with your ingredients, and then work out what's going to be the family the family yeah, meal. You write all about that really beautifully about mm. going down to the market, about following your neighbours and stuff like that. Yeah. But how did they feel about you? Uh, okay, to start with, so I was in a <clears throat> a neighbourhood rather than in the <laughs> historic centre. I was in the um, uh, east of the city, uh, in a neighbourhood known as uh, Castello or more specifically a Giardini, which is around the area of the gardens. Um, every year there's either a, an architecture biennale or an art biennale in Venice, and that always happens and is always centred around the gardens, the Giardini. So um, uh, for six months every year it's, um, it's a little bit trendy in that area, but for the rest of the time it's a genuine residential neighbourhood with washing hanging between uh, the buildings, 
with little old ladies, mostly, occasionally little old men, but mostly old people actually, <laughs> no youngsters because the young people are all working in the post office or on the Vaporetti. Um, and they, they go to the markets in the morning, they have a coffee, they do a little morning version of the um, passeggiata where they gossip and slag off the mayor and talk <laughs> about you know, the, the family in the next street who've just had an illegitimate grandchild, <laughs> just like everywhere else really, and um, then go back to their houses, um, offload the produce, make a cake, have some coffee, a little siesta, come out in the afternoon... Uh, get some bleach in a bucket, wash the step in front of their little houses, wait for their children to come back from school. It's, you know, it's a, there's a pattern every day, and I sort of, you know, I fell into that rhythm. Uh, but the, um, the, the first hurdle I had, to, um, I had to jump was getting accepted by the yeah. neighbourhood, and that was quite difficult. So I would stand, stand there. Can I show you? <laughs> sort of stand there. Um, sort of looking, looking over the shoulders of, these, um, of my neighbours just to see what they were buying and trying to strain uh, and, and hear what they were saying as well so that I could, you know, I could Is your Italian them. good enough my, to... My to food Italian is quite good, right. but my regular Italian is appalling. So I, <laughs> I, I could name every ingredient, uh, every spice, every herb, every vegetable, um, but I couldn't ask you the way to the coach station. So it's a very specific um, version of Italian. Um, but I was able to ask these, um, these neighbours of mine, um, scusi, um, signora, um, what are you going to make with, with these ingredients? And um, they would tell me. It was after looking at me strangely <laughs> and thinking, well, he's, he's, he's not from around here. <laughs> However, within a couple of weeks, word got round. I think I spoke to um, uh, Paolo on the grocery barge and we were talking about Radicchio and he said, what are you doing here? It's the fifth time I've seen you this week and you know, you're <laughs> buying all this food and you know, you're obviously not, living in a, you're not staying in a hotel. And I explained. And so the, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the uh, grapevine, the yeah, uh, the wild neighborhood, the, the, the neighborhood, the neighborhood um, grapevine obviously got working, and within a very short time, people knew why I was there, um, and then everything changed. They think, oh, here's the um, here's the eccentric Englishman who's here writing a book about Venetian cooking. Yeah, and then from that point on, they would um, actively pin me against the wall and <laughs> tell me that I had to make this recipe. Which was which was passed down from uh, from my great grandmother to my my grandmother from my grandmother to my mother and from my mother to me, and if you don't put it in the book, then you're <laughs> failing your duty as a yeah. chronicler of uh, of genuine and authentic Venetian cooking. So it went from uh, it went from me being a, a, a figure of suspicion and um, and and curi curiosity to being someone that they wanted to um, impress and wanted to. Um, but uh, it's amazing that they, because they well from my experience with the Italians we work with a lot of Italians uh, in our restaurants and they're always so passionate about their food oh my God. and they have there's a history to every dish and you have to make it like your mother did and like Not your just nonna that. did and I, I would go further I, I mean there are uh, Italian cooking doesn't exist this is, a, this is a great sort of fallacy and a misnomer people talk about Italian food there is no such thing there, are, there, there, there is the food of the regions of Italy, of course. So you can have Puglian food or Tuscan food or food from Veneto, food from Sicily. But the generic Italian um, uh, moniker, which you see in sort of you know, Hollywood or London or New York, is, is a fallacy. 
Um, and so the greatest hits menus that you sometimes see in these, these you know, rather inauthentic trattoria, where you'll see uh, lasagna and spaghetti bolognese and cannelloni and, uh, and um, carbonara, you know, these are dishes that come from different regions in the country and you would never see on a genuine regional restaurant menu. Um, and so Venice is no exception. Um, and the, the hilarious thing about living in uh, Castello, and in particular that very small and very insular uh, parochial um, portion of Castello around Giardini, is that they would make things in my street differently to the way that they make things in the next street. Yeah. And so you don't just have this, you don't just have this, um, this rivalry between the regions... It's within expect. the city, it's, yeah. No, it's within a couple of hundred yeah. meters. Like what they put onions. <laughs> it's to forget the onions. I mean, the 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 the, um, the starkest example of that was when I was talking to a number of people about the perfect uh, recipe for salsa verde, a very simple Italian sauce. You would have thought, um, which always contains garlic and always contains parsley and may contain a number of other green herbs, but so many people had such strong opinions about what Salsa Verde actually is and what's authentic and what isn't. Have it you is. shown any of them your book once it's done? And uh, got yes. like angry people saying no, you no angry people. Stuff? They've no been angry very people. generous they've been incredibly generous since the book's come out, yeah. But it was only it was in it was in the um, in the uh, construction stages of the book and the research stages of the book that I you know I I picked up on this um, uh, Animosity is the wrong word, but this rivalry or this uh, friendly difference, I suppose, between the way things are done here yeah. uh, with the Capulets and the way things are done here with, with the Montagues. Montagues yeah. <laughs> and what was the worst thing you ate in this time? Do you remember in something Venice. that yeah that you that is. You know, there's always those things, yeah. aren't there, that you just there can't are, stomach. I, 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 I know exactly um, um, what it was. The, um, the, the great thing about Venice. It's a it's a very small city. Uh, not only is it a small city, but it's a city which is an island surrounded by water, and that water is a brackish. It's not it's not the sea, so it's not salty, and it's not fresh water like a river. It's somewhere in between. So the brackish waters of the lagoon, which also, and I'm really sorry to uh, to to bring this up, but it's a fact, which also because of the twice daily tides that come in. It's also a natural uh, sewer system. So everything that is um, jettisoned in the city of Venice sinks to the bottom of the lagoon and the canals, and then two very strong and very effective tides come every single day, take everything out into the Adriatic. It's been like that for one and a half thousand years. It's not going to change. So, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not telling you anything that um, that hasn't hasn't been known up until this point. However, when you go to the markets, when you go to the fish markets, the 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 produce which is revered above everything else is the produce that comes from the lagoon. So those clams that um, that live and grow in the lagoon, the beautiful soft shell crabs known locally as maweke, the um, wonderful little um, capilungi, these razor clams, which are tiny, as big as my little finger. When we when Delicious. we get them here yeah. in this in this they're country, like we, call them, yeah. we call them spoots, and they're like this. I once said to a restaurateur there, a friend of mine called Luca, who runs a restaurant called Ale, Ale Testieri, 
and um, we had these tiny, delicate razor clams like this, so delicate that you could crunch the shells and enjoy the flavour of the shells as well. So, my God, Luca, these are astonishing. We have Capolunghi, we have razor clams in the UK, but they're this big. He said, yes, we have those too, but we use them as bait. (laughs) (laughs) I felt this big afterwards. But um, the reason I mention the lagoon is because um, one of the delicacies from the lagoon uh, is an eel um, called bisato in Venice. It's, it's very particular. Uh, it's a sort of greeny-brown color. It's got a bit of you know, mother-of-pearl luminosity to the skin. Um, you sometimes see them at 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the market stalls still moving. You know, even, even though they're on, on ice, they, they are incredibly resilient as creatures. Um, and it's a delicacy that you find in the most expensive restaurants. It's not, not a cheap dish. And no matter how many times I've tried it, it's always disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your favourite recipe in the book? Okay, my favourite recipe. Uh, it changes, as I'm sure you, you could appreciate, depending on the season. So over the summer... Um, Something as, as almost insultingly simple as the tomato and oregano bruschetta, which appears. I will the, look for pictures at, for you at, guys exactly, while he's talking. Which appears at the front of the summer section, just because um, you know I spent most of the summer after a, a little week in Lake Garda. I spent spent most of the summer in Kent, and tomatoes in Kent are wonderful, uh, and I've always believed in using the very Italian philosophy of looking at your local uh, produce, looking at what's available um, in, you know, in, in the neighbourhood and using that. So very good tomatoes with a very good um, sourdough or um, focaccia, whatever bread you decide to use for your bruschetta base, a little bit of garlic rubbed into it, lots of olive oil, salt and oregano rather than basil, which is the... I, see, I think the go-to herb when it comes to tomatoes, but um, oregano gives so it a more, well, yeah. a much, a much earthier feel. My other favourite recipe, which is also embarrassingly simple, but <clears throat> one I absolutely adore, and you can make it's a larder recipe. So it's one of those recipes you can make when you don't need to go to the shops or you've forgotten to go to the shops, as long as you've got onions in the house. And it's the um, it's the um, uh, spaghetti with onions. It sounds very simple and very um, bland, but you cut um, uh, in very small slices. You don't, you don't chop into small pieces like you were making a risotto, but you slice very finely about five or six onions if there's just a couple of you, maybe seven or eight if there are four of you. Sounds like a lot of onions, but they reduce very quickly. You um, fry them on a very, very low heat, saute them very, very gently for around about 15 minutes until they start to disintegrate. Then you add uh, a slosh of white wine until that evaporates. You um, um, a little bit more salt. You would have salted the onions beforehand. While your pasta is cooking, you make sure you dip a teacup in and reserve a cup of the, um, uh, the cooking water. This is so important. It's something Completely. people don't know. It's the I most know. important thing. Italians pasta never keeps add water. stock to their sauces. Yeah. They only ever add pasta cooking water. If there's one tip you should take away from this evening, it's that. <laughs> Forget stock. If, you're, if, you, if you like pasta and you like sauces, you don't need stock. You just reserve a cup of the pasta cooking water. I'm going to show you my favorite. I haven't made it yet, <laughs> but I'm going to. 
Um, this just looks so delicious. Oh my gosh. Real polenta with uh, olives and anchovies and it just looks... So I was going to make it tonight, yep. but we had to come back from a festival today. So one of our chefs cooks, so I thought, all right, yep. we'll give them other things to do. Um, it's like a tapenade, but you sort of you give up, you lose interest halfway through. So it's all chunky. Yeah, <laughs> rather, I like, but you know, fine. this is, I love that. Oh, we should tell them what they're going to eat. Yes. So do you want to tell them you? Yes, I do, I, I'd love to. So. Um, and I've got to say that, um, and I said this to Itamar, where is he? He's over there. Uh, okay. Um, he said, Does it, uh, do you approve? And I said, no, I, well, not only do I approve, but I think you've made, uh, you've made my food even better than, uh, the, than I could have hoped. It's, um, it's sort of transformed. Um, so we have um, a classic um, fennel and walnut salad. Uh, with celery. This is, um, in the book, I describe this as um, my autumn celery salad. Celery is as hairy as you can find your <laughs> celery, the better, um, with fennel, walnuts, and um, uh, a little bit of dressing and some, uh, and some uh, parmesan cheese. We have a classic. I'm so pleased that we've had this little Indian summer and that it was so warm today. So, you know, tomatoes are still relevant. This is a, a Tuscan dish uh, known as panzanella, which is normally served with stale bread. Uh, but with this, we've flaked some smoked mackerel through it to give it a little bit more of a tang. Meatballs, which are better than I could have ever uh, <laughs> hoped to create myself. I think uh, I'm going to have to get your recipe of my <laughs> recipe later, I think. <laughs> and some spiced pumpkin. It, it, Those it are the savoury dishes. And what's the... And the polenta cake. And the polenta cake. Classic yes. polenta cake. All right, guys, we're going to prepare some food for you. Thank you very much, Russell, for Thank coming. You. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. Mine too. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey and Co or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. We would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at iTunes, only five stars, please. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing, and the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Bye, Felicia's. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.